If we've learned one thing digging up these old bones, dusting them off and holding them to the light, we've learned this. While the days unfold, one after another, and the numbers all move in one direction, our lives are not linear, Harriet. We are the sum of our moments and reflections, actions and decisions, triumphs, failures and yearnings, all of it held together inexplicably, miraculously really, by memory and association. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, February 12th, 2018, and this is your life, Harry, a chance, or that's what we'll find today as we reconnect with author Jonathan Evison whom we first met last year before his Treefort Storyfort appearance. Jonathan Evison is the author of four previous novels, including All About Lulu, West of Here, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, which we talked about last year, and This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. His latest book is Lawn Boy, and it arrives April 3rd from Algonquin Books. Jonathan, again, will be appearing at Treefort, March 21st through the 25th, in beautiful downtown Boise, Idaho. More information about that can be found at treefortmusicfest.com. With Bernard, her husband of 55 years, now in the grave, 78-year-old Harriet Chance impulsively set sail alone on an Alaskan cruise that her late husband had planned. But what Harriet hoped would be a voyage leading to a new lease on life becomes a wildly surprising and revelatory journey into her past. Jonathan Evison has crafted a big-hearted novel with an endearing heroine at the helm. Part dysfunctional love story, part poignant exploration of mother-daughter relationships, nothing is what it seems in this bittersweet tale told with humor and humanity. More information about Jonathan's work can be found at jonathanevinson.net. It's again an honor to host Jonathan on the program. How are you doing today? Hey, Doug. How are you, buddy? I'm all right. Yeah, sorry to put you through all that phone drama. They're shipping me a new one, but I finally got the thing to charge, so we'll be good. Yeah, I tried everything. I had that forced air, you know, the aerosol, blew it out, dried it, put it in rice, did everything, took it to the store. They, they can't figure it out, but it's wrong, so they'll send me another one tomorrow, but I'll just limp this one along. All right. Okay, did I do, did we, we did this last time around, right? Did we do it by phone, or was I in the studio? I don't remember. We did it by phone. Okay. And I think it probably is under really uh, similar circumstances. Um, you know, you were up at your your writer's retreat, and... Uh, Here we are again. Yeah, exactly. Right here, the recording cut out. And so the initial portion of the interview is lost, but we'll begin here in medias res with Jonathan's answer to uh, wherever we had launched from. <laughs> You know, I really do. It's kind of reinvention. It's just a major theme to me. I got to believe that people can can become the people they want to be, or at least strive to become the people they want to be. And and so, like even something like West of Here, which encompasses almost 50 points of view and jumps through time, is really just a. It, it's really just a big character sketch about reinvention. Except in the case of this, uh, the character is the town, and, and all the other all the other ancillary characters are, are just like, uh, you know, um, extensions of, of the place. 
But really, you know, all the books sort of adhere to similar themes. Masculinity and Crisis, that's another one. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess the reason I do this is because I want to grow. I want to become a more expansive person. And, and I think that's one of the, the, the greatest and most unique things about literature. I'm, I'm a huge music lover and I'm an audiophile, love cinema, but uh, the novel to do something none of them do as effectively. And that is, like, you know, allow the end user to walk a mile in the shoes of, of, of the protagonist. And, and this is how I approach it as a writer, too. I, I want to I be a more expansive person. I want to own that narrative and I want to live it like experience. So, you know, I try to inhabit as many characters as I possibly can. Uh, along the way, and um, it—I uh, don't know—it suits my sort of schizophrenic personality, I guess. You know, it's—it's it's interesting because I think I was arriving at a similar conclusion this year. Just how, I mean, with serial TV now, you're arriving at something similar to that, where you can be in a person's life for a period of time, but there's something more intimate that a novel grants you where like uh I was reading Anna Karenina this past winter and like trying to do that in a film which they did is like you know I don't even know why they bother you know yeah you know I've yet to see a pre-revolutionary Russian novel made into a good uh, miniseries film or anything like that I think the reason is interior dialogue you, you just you can't have that interiority with film and I really think that that's really what's at the heart of the novel. Yeah. Is, uh, you use the word intimacy. I mean, it's impossible. You just don't have the same partnership as if you were watching something. It's a more passive thing. I mean, as the author, I'm just I'm constantly aware of the reader. I mean, when I'm writing, I'm thinking of the reader. And by the reader, I don't mean the, the demographic, you know what I mean, or you know, the actual legions of people out there you know, with their face in my book. I just kind of mean me at the other end. Because it keeps me honest. I, sometimes it's, we get we tend to get a little too authorial, and 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 when we we're not we're not uh, I guess uh, cognizant enough of the information we're sharing with the reader. So by treating it like a dance, you know, where the the reader's got to do everything, I've got to do backwards and heels. It really allows me to undermine expectations. It allows me to, I mean for lack of a better word, manipulate. Uh, I don't look at it as manipulation. Like I said, I look at it as more like a dance, but uh, I think, yeah, I, I just think you can, can't do that with a film. I mean, like, I just don't think that it, I don't know. I think uh, I don't, the dictates are so different. I don't know. Blah, well, blah, 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 well blah, blah. we can talk Listen about the dance with Harriet, actually, because this, like, I was thinking about the structure of that. Like, in terms of inspiration, um, where did this book come from? And then it, it's not a linear storytelling. You definitely are flipping around. And so did you conceive of her in that same way? Or did you conceive of her linearly and then put it into that structure to create this reader readerly dance? Yeah, well, here, I'll be honest with you. I mean, every novel you have this sort of aha moment in its creation where you finally figure out what it's about. Usually that happens before I finish the first draft. You know what I mean? It's like, I'll get like midway through the book and it's like, ah, I don't even need the first hundred pages. Now I know what I'm trying to get at. With Harriet, the early drafts were actually uh, suffocating. They were stultifying. I was trying to get at Harriet, you know, an 80 year old widow and living in this big empty house um, from the outside in. And so, I mean, I had, 
you know, hundreds of pages of, you know, Harriet patting around this big empty house in her slippers, you know, sipping her tea and looking out the window. And uh, then I had her seven day cruise, which was handled, you know, very linearly. And uh, I turned it into my agent and editor and they were like, well, we don't like, we don't like her. We don't like Harriet. And I'm like, well, well, you don't like Miss Daisy either, you know? And and then they said, and my agent said, yes, but Jessica Tandy's performance. And that's when a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, yes, I've got to perform. I'm always railing on the authorial and talking about working with the reader, but sometimes as an artist, I have to perform. So I, I had to infuse that novel with more of me, you know what I mean? Less of just this, uh, you know, uh, quotidian reportage on Harriet. And so, uh, I thought, you know, all my novels are usually, I, I try to frustrate the linearity somehow. I don't like linear timelines. And here I was missing my greatest opportunity because, you know, this was a novel about uh, memory and reflection, which are, you know, decidedly not linear processes. So I'm like, I have an opportunity here to completely blow this open, develop sympathy with Harriet, which was really missing. Um, you know, that's why nobody liked her. Um, because they didn't understand how she became who she was. And so this allowed me to, it seems kind of random in the book, like I'm just flipping around like, you know, a pinball, but really, you know, it works like memory. I mean, there's triggers in the four story that, that, that make Harriet hop back, uh, you know, reflectively to these other critical moments in her life. So it allowed me to open Harriet's life and, 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 you know, parse it out at will to, to suit the, Made me, I guess, it made me allow me to make the book revelatory. You know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. every every chapter or so, you learn a piece of information that causes you to have to totally recontextualize Harriet and what you thought you knew about her. And so this became suddenly what was a passive, sort of stultifying linear narrative. Suddenly became a narrative of discovery and 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 interaction with the reader, and you know, a little bit more of a puzzle. And so, yeah, I, 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 all those, this is your life passages, all those second, second person passages I wrote in a period of probably a month and they comprise maybe 35% of the book. But like, whereas I spent two years writing the rest of the book, once I made that realization and I knew exactly what I was doing, it just, it wrote itself, which is, you know, that's the funnest part. There's so much, you know, brick and mortar work and so much, Grunt, grunt labor involved with writing a three or 400, 500 page novel that uh, it's just really nice when you get into that zone where like you finally know exactly what you're doing. But so why Harriet? Why did this, this like 80 year old, you know, why did she speak to you at that, at that time? Well, you know, I like to write about marginalized people and I mean like who's more marginalized in our culture than an 80 year old woman uh, for starters. And then also, you know, I had written a coming-of-age novel with all about Lulu, and then I, you could kind of characterize the revised fundamentals of caregiving as a, uh, as a coming-of-middle-age novel, and, and this one kind of completed the uh, continuum for me, because it's kind of an old age, you know, it's kind of a coming-of-old-age, you know, where, you know, I, I like this idea that it's never too late to, you know, kind of retell your own story and rewrite it. Yeah, but then there's something nice about how... There's a surface to both Harriet and kind of the generation that she came out of and that you definitely see the surface and then you go into that and see, you know, the, the reality of, of, you know, I don't want to spoil anything in this book, but definitely you get at, you know, the 
the bones of of her life and it, it's not it's not as um as it appears on the surface and so like i, I didn't... that's the other thing that's why i like to write about kind of normal just people you know i'll be sitting on a bus city bus looking at the window and i'll i'm just in naturally kind of an empath and so like i'll just see some guy standing there in a winter coat and all of a sudden my imagination is like okay i'm seeing a guy in a white coat but what's this guy's life really like and so like i'll just sit there and start to try to inhabit the person and and fill it out and that to me is so fascinating that's what makes me a more expansive person and that's why i never feel like i i run out of stories to tell because there's just an unlimited amount of people and that's really what drives me i just want to understand humanity and i want to frame it in in both a universal way but also in, in a highly unique way well kurt in that book seems so like substantial as a character it's like yeah that that guy is all there um how do you how do you find a character like Kurt? Is this someone that tickles you from reality, or is he just somebody that knocks on your imagination's door? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've been on a couple cruises. There seems to be there's always a few Kurts in there. Uh, I mean, most of, I just know it. I love people. I really do. I, as I get older, I get a little more cynical, and I'm not too happy with the world we live in right now. I've lost a little of my faith in humanity, so I got to fight even harder to restore it. And so, uh, I, I just, I don't know. I just inhabit the people. I, I, I meet a lot of people. I know a lot of people. My characters are amalgams, but really, I mean, I just sort of inhabit it. You just kind of, uh, imbue a character with some, some qualities and a, in a, you know, a destiny and, and some yearnings and some conflicts. And then, and then you just get up inside them and, 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 and just, you know, move around with them and, and try to, try to navigate the human obstacle course. And, and um, that's the part again, where it, by the end of it, I feel like, I feel like I'm a more expansive person. I feel like I literally walked a mile in somebody else's shoes. Um, more it becomes, uh, I think kind of sticky is, you know, the appropriation conversation, because, you know, I've written from native American perspectives, black perspectives, child perspectives, 80 year old women perspectives. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, so when people, you know, this, it's an interesting and I think an important conversation, but like, you know, geez, if, if we can't appropriate, uh, you know, how, how are we supposed to, uh, how are we supposed to become more expansive if we can't, um, uh, try to understand the experiences of others in the most intimate way possible? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there was something I just read in the New Yorker a little while there was this this black writer who was always writing not always but would write about white perspective from a white point of view and he was really good but no you know his his black audience didn't want to read what white people thought you know but he was doing exactly what you're saying he's trying to see the other side as a writer i mean isn't that isn't that how we're going to save the world <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, we live in a time of just massive division. The only thing that's going to save us now is, uh, you know, having to force ourselves to find some middle ground. Well, here's an interesting thing. So last time we talked, you were talking about how, as you were writing these books in your 20s in your garage, you were realizing that there were moments that were happening that you were missing out on because your work wasn't being published. And you thought, you know, I wrote that book. Well, so yeah, the, the zeitgeist, man, it's real. You know, I remember I wrote a book, and I don't know, it must have been the 
mid eighties or something. I don't even remember what the book was, but I remember Stanley, I'm discovering a Stanley Elkin book that was published that year, uh, that I had no idea about, but it was like so similar. I mean, like the themes, the characters, the, the scenario, it was, uh, I really do believe there's a zeitgeist out there. You know, I believe that you can, I believe that, you know, call it what you want. I mean, there's a pulse to the culture. There's things that are on people's mind. And I don't know, I like to think I'm pretty good at finding it, even though it seems like I'm a, some sort of hermit up here in the mountains. I spend so much time with people actually, you know, I'm doing like 50, 60 cities a year. And my life is just either it's, I guess balance and symmetry aren't the same thing. You know, I spend a lot of time by myself, isolated in, in writing, but then I spend a, a, a proportionate amount of time just really swimming with humanity. Well, Harriet came out in, is it 20 fall of 2016 or 2015? Jeez, I don't remember 15, maybe I can't well, keep track. because I just read it. It seems so timely in terms of what just happened, though, in because of the zeitgeist to this Me Too moment. It's it so like there's something that you really tapped into, kind of that quality also in this book by really getting to the heart of Harriet Chance. There's something that you're still within the realm of the zeitgeist that's just so fascinating to me. Yeah, I think because the zeitgeist kind of happens a few years before, you know, I mean, I think the artist is more sensitive to it or whatever, or like, uh, I feel like, I mean, the, a blessing in disguise is that publishing moves so slowly, I think, you know, because uh, I don't, I think the climate, like you said, I think the climate was better for Harriet by the time it was released than it was at the time I actually sort of uh, latched onto it. And I, I, I'm definitely feeling that way with the, the book I'm writing now. I feel like by the time it comes to publication, people are really going to be ready to have this conversation. Or with Lawn Boy, which is dropping now, I mean, when I wrote it, um, you know, wealth disparity is not a new problem or anything, but it had not, it had not frothed to the surface as it has now. And, and, And so I feel like the book is dropping at a perfect time, even though I've been done with it for two and a half years. So I'm excited about that. I mean, call it luck, call it serendipity, whatever. But uh, we'll talk about Lawn Boy a little bit. So what what's the what's the premise there? Well, it's always I've always wanted to write a, a, a you know I wanted to the way I conceived it was I always kind of wanted to do what I what I did with history and west of here just to, to sort of um, subvert the tropes of the historical fiction. I wanted to do that with with a with a class novel. And uh, I guess I thought I would I would I would use a wider angle and kind of a broader scope originally, and it would be more of a West Pier novel um, that would you know bridge a big uh, bridge a big time span and, and include many voices. But then then I just discovered this one irreverent working class voice who I just loved to inhabit, who is very in large part me, um, and. Uh, it was the perfect vehicle to explore class because you, you know, you've got this kid that basically is, 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 is trying to find his way. It's trying to, uh, try, trying to find his way to the American dream, um, in a, in a world that doesn't have a lot of opportunities to him. And, you know, he's working and he's basically working at the country club. Um, and so, you know, he gets to, we get to see the, uh, juxtaposition of great wealth and, 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 and the working poor. And, and, um, I don't know. It's just, 
the novel actually started because I was under contract for another novel and I didn't want to write it because the center wasn't holding. So I threw it away without telling anybody, but I needed to write as a, as an artist or whatever. I needed to feel creative. I needed to do something every now and then I'll do something anonymously or every six months I'll do kind of a performance art sort of thing. Sometimes it'll be anonymous and I'll never take credit for it or whatever. But so I started this landscaping blog in Mike's voice. And, you know, it was like, you know, monkey crap, brown, endless scrolling, very 90s HTML, lo-fi, no paragraph breaks, just, just, just Mike on landscaping and, and wealth disparity and the culture and everything like this. And, um, and I just sort of put it out there and it actually started getting some followers and things like that. And as I wrote more and more of this stuff, I really realized that I had, I had the voice I needed for this novel I'd always wanted to write. The, the, the website's still out there somewhere. I think it's called Mike Munoz saves the world dot net or something like that. But um, that's where the novel came out of. Finally, I go, okay, this is a novel. And, and so it's not, the novel's not, but it was born out of, it was born out of the desire just to break out and do something for the sheer love of writing. Cause I was just feeling kind of hemmed in by contracts. And, and um, so eventually what I was able to do is write the novel and say, Hey, let me switch this one out for the one I threw away. Well, that that opens an interesting line of questions in terms of your work as an artist is, is, if if something isn't working, like you said, you threw it away. You know, do you feel like you have play time and work time, and with work time you need to uh, make progress on the product, or you know, is it all all of a piece, and that you can just like, if you're called, you're gonna you're gonna start a new blog, and and that's gonna be how you spend your fifteen hours in the mountains. Yeah, that is an interesting question. I mean, art and commerce is, I mean, I've, I've done, I've built some sort of safeguards into my whole epistemology about how I handle this. And, and like, it's to always stay at least one book ahead of my publisher, you know, sometimes two, I'd be two ahead if it weren't for the aforementioned that I threw away. And that's because the more books I sell or the more um, success I'm able to achieve or whatever, the more outside voice maybe want to um, instruct me or influence me or, you know, Hey Johnny, why don't you write a book about, you know, your time and, you, you know, in the punk rock scene in the early eighties, that'd be really interesting. It'd be a memoir. I can sell that. You know I mean? I just, I don't want to have that kind of, I don't want to sully the art, you know? So I write exactly what I want always, but I, I try to stay ahead of the publisher. So it's like, you know, it, it safeguards me being able to do exactly what I want. And um, when I threw away that other novel, I just wasn't in a position where I was ready to tell anybody about it because, you know, uh, my deadline wasn't looming. I had time to write another book, but they had kind of wanted that book because when I sold it, I hadn't sold it. I'd sold on it more on the concept. Um, they knew it had a lot of work, but I got through it and realized the center didn't hold. And I just, I just wasn't ready to have that conversation. You know, I mean, I thought, well, I'm going to solve this problem myself just by writing a different book. But in the meantime, I got to do something from keeping me from being crazy because just having having to frame it like that just made me kind of want to break out and just do something just for the fun of it. Hmm. And then then it came back and turned into commerce again. <laughs> well, that's always the best, isn't it? When when the the two go together. Yeah, and it, you know it's a you know for some people it's a sticky marriage, I guess. But like I said, if you build the safeguards in, if you know you're just doing what you want to do, um, 
you know, you can protect that. I mean, I, I could see, I could see how it would ruin it. I mean, they, you know, if I were a guy who had had one super, super successful book, say, you know, and, uh, everybody just wanted me to keep writing that book because it sold so well. I mean, that could be, you know, you think, okay, it's a new number one, you know, it just, it, it sold millions of copies. You think that's a, you think that's like some kind of blessing, but like, I would look at that as actually kind of a nightmare. You know what I mean? Cause then the expectation for me is to just keep doing that thing all the time. So I've always taken the kind of the long game view of this thing. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to build my audience kind of incrementally and, 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 and locate and find the readers that, that just kind of get what I'm doing and like that and um, keep the expectations just kind of kind of evolve at a comfortable level of success, which is convenient because I didn't really just break out. You know what I mean? It's just kind of been a slow build. Well, and so that's interesting to me. I wonder if some of your books sell differently than others because they, their style or well, the content is quite different in each of them. Well, yeah, the, I mean, the, the numbers are the numbers are pretty consistent. I mean, as far as like the type of reader buying them, I don't know. I don't know if the the demographic changes or whatever. But I mean, the idea is to keep the sales track kind of steady, and you know, hopefully, uh, there's only so much I can control, you know. But I work with a publisher who does a really great job, and um, you know, really allows me to help me help myself. Runs me out there on the road every year for a lot of dates, and and um, it's a great relationship. And it's one of the reasons why I've taken less money in advance at certain points, you know, just, I want to, I want continuity. I want to stay, I want the peace of mind to just know that I'm working in a partnership where, you know, there's not a lot of turnover and my, my editor's not going to leave for another job and I'm going to get dropped in the lap of another editor or, or because I took more money, I have different sort of expectations. It's just, uh, I found a really nice equilibrium working with Algonquin and um, I love it and I want to preserve it. And then what about, the the finalization process is it pretty much the same where as soon as you know you're you're down to the f the final moments and it's about to go to print as far as like a book tour and things you know what does that look like well right now it looks like panic because i really want to ra i really i'm very close to finishing this novel and and i'm always trying to keep the a uh, 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 healthy workflow i have so much to balance you know i have three young kids i have the, the travel and, 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 you know, uh, the travel and touring part of my career. And then I, then I have, you know, the writing. And so, um, right now, I mean, like, I think Boise is where it all, all starts for me when I come to tree fort from then on for the next six, seven weeks, it's going to be just, you know, city after city after city, no time to write, hardly going to see my kids, which is awful. But, uh, the one blessing is if I could finish this novel before then, I get rid of that awful waiting period. This way I can turn it into my agent instead of just sitting there on pins and needles and waiting three weeks for her to read it or then waiting for it to go out to go out to market or whatever. I'm going to be too busy to be thinking about that. So um, right now I'm just really, it's not, I'm kind of racing to, to just finish another draft. I mean, the novel's in great shape, but uh, I, I really just, I, I want to polish it. And that gives me what five weeks to do it. And, and, how how are your chances? You feel pretty good about that? Oh yeah, I think I'm actually so far ahead of that that I'm actually going to go through take a whole other run at it. I'm hoping like within the next two days I've got about eighty more pages I want to go through or something, and then then I think I'm going to go through a whole other run. And so that that's a curiosity to me. Um, you, so you've let's say you 
how do you work? Do you get the entire the entire draft done and then begin digging in? Or is it a matter of different parts expand and different parts contract? Or, you know, what what is that? What is the process never looks the same. (laughs) It never looks the same. It's dependent on so many things. Like, like I just write on my laptop now. Okay. And it's changed the process in a way. It's become so much more fluid. I didn't used to like to just write on the laptop. I would like, I like to print something out and then do a longhand version and then go back and forth because the idea was that sort of utilizing two parts of my brain or whatever. Yeah. But now the process is so fluid and I knew what I was doing. Like probably the best thing that ever happened to me was failing on that novel because I learned so much. I mean, I painted myself into all these corners that I'm never going to paint myself in again. So like when I got to, even when I got to the point where I really blew this novel up and made it bigger and bigger, I felt so much more in control than I think I ever have. And so I did something I had never done before. I, I was kind of moving back and forth. I was going deep into the novel and passing, uh, you know, uh, maybe 20, 25% of the novel that wasn't even written to write a scene that I knew had to be there. You know, I, I'd never done that before. I was kind of jumping around like Harriet's life, but in within the manuscript. Because, you know, I, I, I know that there's like, you know, a limited number of big scenes to the drama, you know, and everything else is really kind of transitional and, and like I see the shape of it already and that allowed me to jump around in a way I've never done before. So you're putting the biggest rocks in the bucket first, as it were, and then putting the sand in later? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that metaphor works exactly at all. It, it's just more like if, if you imagine this, if you imagine this as a, as a, you know, three acts as I always do. My books, no matter how much I frustrate the linearity or, or, or try to subvert tropes, they, they really always are, always kind of adhere to Aristotelian dramatics, you know, it's usually three acts. So I'd be moving, I might be uh, still writing in the first act, but realize that there's a, a, a scene I see that's in the third act. And I, so I'll go out and I'll go ahead and write it. And then, you know, it may be months before I get there working linearly, uh-huh. but like I've never done that before. And it's it's worked seamlessly this time. I think part of it has to do with just the nature of this novel, and and part of it has to do with um, just everything I learned failing on the last one. That's the exciting thing, dude. I'm still learning. I've actually written like what, 14, 15 books, and I'm still learning. That's what keeps me going. I still suck so much. Well, and that's also the interesting thing to say aloud. So you say you've written 14, 15 books, and you've published... Well, six of them, six of those will are published or will be published and, and, and what seven, eight, or just, you know, some of them are buried. Some of them are in a drawer somewhere. Um, you know, none of them will ever see the light of day. What about like software? Does that matter? Do you write? Do I you... just use word. Yeah. I'm kind of a Luddite, you know, um, not as much as a Luddite as if I were, you know, writing longhand, but, uh, yeah, I don't like bells and whistles. I don't like, um, I don't like software design to help you write screen write you know screenplays or, or you know, structure things. I, I I just like just one old word document. All right, well let's shift shift gears a little bit and talk about your experience at Treefort last year. What was what was that like? I loved it, man. And you know I've been lucky that Chris Wynn is uh, kind of like let me help him a little bit. You know what I mean? Invite people and to a small degree, kind of help curate and invite writers that I just think are great fits, like bringing Willie Vlotten back or Stuart O'Nan. Stuart O'Nan. And um, I just love it, dude. It is so fun. 
great bands, great literary talent. It's such a perfect size, little city. I love the record store there, good bars, good restaurants. It's just, I mean, it's, I, I really look forward to it. A lot of times when I'm out on the road, I'm just like one night in and you don't, you know, you don't really get to sink in. So it's nice to stay in the same hotel for four or five days and, and take in all those acts and actually get a little rhythm and really just appreciate, uh, Boise and not have to drive anywhere, just walk around. I, it's a blast. And so, so you were there last year for a few days at least then? Yeah, I think I was there the whole time or four or five days. I, I think I'm coming Wednesday through Sunday again this time. So at least four or five days. I, I think pretty much the whole whole thing it was great. Saw Jonathan Richmond, saw the meat puppets for the first time in 30-something years. And what what is it like to tour for a book that's not out yet? Does that make it more difficult or? Well, that's not really the case. I mean, this is, yeah, this, what I'm going to do in Boise is actually I'm launching a 10th year anniversary edition of All About Lulu, which is my first published novel. And that came out 10 years ago next month. So uh, um, I'll just, I'm kind of there in support of that book too, even though the book, the Lawn Boy comes out a couple weeks after, and I think they're going to ship it so that there'll be copies there and stuff like that. But I think while I'm there, I'm 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 going to be talking about Lulu, and then once Boise's over, and then I start going wider, uh, then 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 it'll be about Lawn Boy. Okay, and so you mentioned also that um, you you helped give uh, some suggestions to Christian, the director of Storyfort. Who were some of those people that you mentioned? Uh, Willie Vlatton uh, is a really good friend of mine. Uh, he was in a band called Richmond Fontaine, who are amazing too. But he's got a new book out called Don't Skip Out on Me. He was there last year. We did an event together. We've done many, many events together all over the place because um, we just like get an excuse to get together and drink <laughs> and have a good time. Um, and then Stuart O'Nan, who is like one of my literary idols, who uh, I was fortunate enough to befriend eventually. But, you know, he's a guy I've been following for 20 years. He's written, I don't know, Stuart's probably written 16 novels. Uh, and, and like mine, they're vastly different. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a brave, uh, he's a brave writer. Um, he lives in Pittsburgh. He'll be there. He's a great fit. Uh, Lydia Yuknovich from Portland. She's amazing. Um, I think those are the three people I invited this year. Now, I think, does she have a brand new book out too? That's, um, yeah, the book of Joan. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think that came out about eight, nine months ago. It's maybe coming out new in paperback or something. Okay. I think it's out in paperback now, yeah. Yeah, every year the... Well, so the the fun thing about Tree Fort is that um, the bands are always great and it's it programmed so well, but then the daytime is now... Every every year the, the festival continues, it becomes more and more uh, fun. You know, the kind of stuff that you, the content that's produced, like the story for it and the various panels and things. And so this is what... what yeah, I'm... just looking at the program, I can feel the growth. I realize it's been going that way for a few years, but even looking at this year's program uh, uh, to next, and I think Chris said he was able to get more budget. I think there's more writers. I, I mean, it's really, it's fun to be a part of that. Be, you know, hope they just keep inviting me back. Yeah, well, so I I went to you and Willie's presentation last year, and and it was there was a lot of humor. It was it was a really good time. I enjoyed myself immensely. I mean, they put you 
<laughs> on these kind of precarious chairs on the stage, I was worried that someone might go over the back into these paintings, but no one did. It was great. Yeah, it was fun, and they got that big shuffleboard table out there. I forget the name of that venue, uh, but they got that. I have a big shuffleboard table out in my garage here. I'm a big shuffleboard guy, so I loved uh, after the gig going out there and throwing some throwing some weights. Well, so let's talk about Bigfoot. I think recently you were you were on the trail of Bigfoot in in probably where your writing retreat is. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So little tongue in cheek. God knows I want to believe, but yeah, I'm, I just have fun with it. I go out and walk my dog, and I make these very earnest pseudo scientific, you know, like one minute uh, cryptozoological, uh, you know field studies and um you know it's amazing to me how many people actually think i'm serious um <laughs> but i just having fun with it it's just something to do when i'm out walking my dog in the woods but it is a theme for me Bob bigfoot made an appearance in west of here and i've gone in a few of those expeditions you know with the bigfoot field research organization and and so uh i don't know it's kind of attached itself to the johnny everson brand or something so everybody sends me Everybody sent, I've got like every Bigfoot t-shirt, coffee mug, uh, you know, sign for my garage, shot glass. I have so, I'm drowning in Bigfoot paraphernalia because people see Bigfoot and they think of me and that's, that's good. I like that. Could, do you think you're in Bigfoot, a Bigfoot, like a standalone Bigfoot novel? I don't, I don't. If I did, I think that, that guy, a guy from San Francisco already did it. It was like uh, me write mem not me write book, <laughs> memoir yeah. or whatever. Like, you know, I mean, that, that's kind of how you, I, I mean, that's probably how I'd want to approach it. I'd want to get inside of him and it's kind of been done, but yeah, people would like to see that. I, I think it would, I, I, yeah, I don't think so. I don't, you know, I think it'd be kind of like that sort of Hitchcockian thing where, you know, you know a silhouette of Bigfoot will, you know, make a passing appearance in a book here and there. Well, when we started, I there was a a glitch at the beginning, and so I lost a little bit of our, like about a minute. So we started by talking about your book Cave Dave, and Cave Dave became you you said the history of the Cascades. Is that right? Yeah, it's called Legends of the North Cascades. There now. we go. Okay, and you know, and part of it is about like uh, a single mom, a single mom on the Cordilleran ice sheet you know, in uh, 13,500 BC. And, and, you know, part of it is, is in modern day, uh, a modern day story. And, and it's told from many voices. And, and, and really it's about, you know, kind of the theme of the book is, is, is uh, you know, uh, legend and, and myth-making and, and the subjectivity of, uh, uh, you know, how we frame legends and myths. And it's pretty big stuff. I love it. It's fun. Now, historically speaking, I believe there was a a big tsunami that went through there and wiped out um, some prehistoric folks. Does that make an appearance in your book? I don't know about the giant tsunami. I just know about the you know the glaciers retreating and probably you know at the end of the last uh, you know the later Neolithic. And, uh, you know, about three miles from my cabin here, they, they made an archaeological discovery in the 70s, which is really groundbreaking, which is they found a, they found a, the entire skeleton of a, a woolly mammoth with a, uh, a blade embedded in its shoulder. And it was really the first evidence of, you know, humans 
humans in North America, you know, walking alongside, you know, megafauna. And it kind of pushed the timeline back. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, so yeah, I don't know about the tsunami. Well, there was a maybe it was a couple years ago. This article in in some New York publication, maybe it was the Atlantic, I don't know, but about the <laughs> the the earthquake that's going to destroy everything. You know, everything. What is it? West of the I five will be toast. Is that does that register? As a resident, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I do. I remember something about. It. I don't know about the exact idol, but I saw it. You know, it was all over the internet. Like, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna worry about stuff on geological time. I mean, what am I gonna do? At least I'm up at 700 feet. I mean, how much of the ocean? You know, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't like to get into that panicky stuff. I don't like to think about. You know electromagnetic pulses or tsunamis or i mean i think about global warming but uh i just i don't know i don't want to get too anxious man well so you did reference mount saint harriet i i noted you know so that was an interesting you know when you were talking about harriet through the ages um you know you compared her temper to mount saint helens was that something that you remember living there i do well you yeah may 18th 1980. I remember it well. Uh, our neighbors had uh, their house had burned down like two weeks before. Uh, uh, somebody borrowed a fuel line out of the kid's muscle car. He went to turn it on and it blew the roof off the garage or whatever. Shook the whole neighborhood. Uh, no, that was two weeks after, and we thought it was St. Helens again. That's what it was. Um, yeah. Well, I remember that the chapter you're talking about. If you look at the date, I think it's May 18th, 1980. Yeah. And that's why I called her Mount St. Harriet. Um, you know, Seattle, Washington people will make that connection immediately because the date is just like infamous in Washington. You say May 18th, everybody knows what that is. Well, I grew up in northern Idaho and we had we had ashfall and we had to shovel the streets. But I, I imagine you guys got more and maybe experienced something. Actually, no. I mean, as I recall, it all blew. Most of it blew. Uh, most of it blew east. Or uh, it didn't. It didn't really. We didn't have. I. I. I can remember a little, little ash, but mostly we didn't get a lot over. I. I was on Bainbridge Island at the time. We didn't get a lot of ash. I think most of it were, you know, blew uh, other directions. All right. Well, so we're we're beginning to run out of time. But so, like you were talking about working books ahead, I'm just l- trying to put everything back in order now. So. So, uh, Lawn Boy comes out April 3rd, and then right now you're wrapping up the your final draft of um, Legends of the Cascades. Legends Cas- of the North. North yeah. Cascades. And, yeah, so that's probably three years out. But then do you have another one that you're... Oh, I've got a couple ideas. I've got two or three ideas. I have to sort of uh, decide which one I want to commit to. And uh, it may not be any of those. I have a, uh, right now I'm just going to keep my eyes on the prize here, finish this. But I, uh, I have a, a notebook full of uh, ideas for the next novel. We'll just see which one, which one of them really, you know, grabs me. Once I free my mind of this one, what will happen is one of them will just kind of start to, uh, you know, gel more than the others, I think, and, and uh, distinguish itself. But I, there's nothing I can even talk about this time. It's so nebulous. Do you have you found yourself in a in a space of limbo in the the recent past where where the manuscript is to the publisher but 
you're not certain what to do now or does that never that's my nightmare i don't know how people i mean i think that's how most writers work i don't know how they do it i think the anxiety would eat me alive you know because i gotta keep the lights on too i mean i got a family to support and i don't i don't teach i don't do really any freelance i mean it's all about selling books for me and so i think i would just panic and then i think you know you might have other voices sort of piping in like your agent or editor making suggestions and like that would just muddy the waters more that would be my nightmare to like turn something in and, and then go what next i gotta keep the work going man i gotta i'm I'm kind of a i'm a i got a bit of a workaholism problem i think but i gotta just keep i gotta keep plowing forward so no yeah i don't I mean, I think I had that when I was in my twenties at some point, and I, I didn't like it. And but do you, do you do you find that the way you work is pretty much the same from in your twenties, where you you dedicate a certain part of the day and then you just do it, or in your twenties was it more of a when you had time kind of situation? No, I was. Uh, you know, I mean, I pretty much incrementally linked or in, in, incrementally sort of. Uh, erased any other possibility for my life. You know, I didn't finish college. I didn't choose any career. My, you know, I have a, you know, uh, gloriously unfocused work history, but I never, (laughs) the one thing is I never really worked more than 30 hours a week. I was always selfish with my writing time. So I lived as a starving artist for, you know, three decades, two and a half decades, where it was like, I just accepted the fact that I was going to be broke. Luckily I knew bartenders, you know what I mean? So I could go out or whatever. But, uh, um, I, I just, I think, uh, I've always worked, I'd say at least 30 hours a week, you know, even on six unpublished books. I mean, I, I was, I was pretty disciplined about it. I think I probably wrote more often than I do now. Cause I'm down to two and a half days with the marathon sec- set, you know, sessions. But I, I mean, back then I think I would get impassioned and you know, I wouldn't go out on a Friday night to stay home and write and things like that. I just have to be much more structured with my time now. And so then when, when you're on tour and they ask you what kind of advice you give to young writers, you know, what is your answer? <laughs> Keep failing, I guess. I mean, I don't, one of the reasons I don't like to teach is because I just, I kind of ultimately, I'm a, I'm a good like mentor, coach, you know, pep talk guy, but I, I really, honestly, I, I feel like it's, I don't know, almost like a disservice to try to teach somebody the principles that I've learned on my own. I mean, I really feel like you just, if you're going to arrive at a unique voice, if you're ever going to really arrive at a unique vision, I kind of feel like you got to just get there on your own, man. I feel like you got to, I, I, I just feel like if you, you know, there's always the risk you're going to be indoctrinated, you know? I read a lot of MFA fiction and I just feel that it's like, okay, this is how Tim O'Brien did this. This is how Dennis Johnson did this. Here, we're going to teach you how to use the prismatic lens. And I just I just think that what happens is it becomes so crafty that, I, I don't know, it loses a sort of, I'm going to be, I'm, people are going to hate me for saying this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just, I just kind of feel like failure is the best way to learn anything, you know? I just feel like, uh, I mean, most of my favorite writers uh, that I've talked to, I mean, they've all got three, four novels in a drawer, you know? I mean, it's it, it's it's, you know, I think now there's a lot of writers that, you know, they get an MFA and they're kind of, you know, they meet an agent through Iowa or whatever. And, you know, probably their first novel goes out there. But I think the kind of the working man's writer, in my experience, like uh, has at least a couple drawer novels failures somewhere. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. 
Oh, man, thanks for having me. You bet. Yeah, we'll let you get back to it. You've been listening to Jonathan Evanson on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio on thesyncbook.com. Check out his work at jonathanevanson.net, to which we'll link. For uh, more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others, as currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And it's a cruel process, aging. Take my advice, dear. Maintain your independence as long as possible. Hey there, let's get away. We sure need a lazy summer day. But oh dear, we've got to stay. And finish all that we needed to say. Now darling, if you fall. Cause you